Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Fred. Redeem. It's a word we hear all the time. If LeBron James can win a championship here in LA, he would redeem himself as a true Laker. Don't forget to redeem your reward points. You have enough to earn a free Chick-fil-A sandwich. Of course, not on Sundays. Hun, should we redeem our credit card points? We can actually get a free flight. Why don't we redeem these coupons before Bed Bath & Beyond go bankrupt? (laughs) We use redeem in all kinds of places for all kinds of things, whether it be round-trip tickets, aluminum cans, or a free Starbucks drink on our birthday. As a result, the meaning can be watered down and a bit trivialized. This is unfortunate because in the Bible, the word redeem is pivotal to our understanding of the gospel. It's pivotal in our understanding of what God has done for us. The Bible tells us that God redeems us. Titus 2, 14 declares, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. In the Bible, God is called our redeemer. Job 19, verse 25, but I know that my redeemer lives and at the end he will stand on the dust. Salvation is also called our redemption. Colossians 1, 14, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lastly, the people of God are called the redeemed. And so we see the word or a form of redeem all over the Bible. In fact, over 119 times to be exact. And so if you're here this morning because you're curious about what Christianity is or what the Bible is all about, then a great place to start is to simply study this word redeem. Christianity is ultimately about a redeemer who offers redemption to all those who believe so that they might be redeemed. And this theme is at the center of our scripture reading this morning. Paul declares in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
And so given how important this word redemption is to our understanding of Christianity and the Bible, I want to give you a short historical overview of what this word means. The origin of the word redemption can be traced all the way back to the Greek word luo, which means to loose. Not lose, but to loose, like I need to loosen my pants, I ate too much, hypothetically speaking. Like loose, like we need to loosen this animal that's tied to the tree. And so loosen can apply to all kinds of things. And over time, another word began to develop out of luo, and that's the word lutron. Now, lutron refers to a specific kind of loosening. It refers to the loosening or the releasing of prisoners of war. You see, in the first century BC, there were a lot of pirates in the Mediterranean, and they would capture boats and capture prisoners, and they would demand a lutron. In other words, they demanded a ransom. You must pay us this much money if you want us to free these prisoners. Those prisoners who were freed were then called redeemed by everyone. Later on, piracy gave way to slavery. And so that the practice of redeeming a slave meant that someone offered a price for their release, for their liberation. And so in Paul's day, whenever someone heard the word redeem or the word redemption, they immediately thought of the slave market. They immediately thought of prisoners of war being released due to a ransom that was paid. And God takes this word and he adopts it for religious usage. God takes this secular word and says, this is what I have done for my people. You were once slaves. You were held captive and in bondage, but I have come to free you from your slavery. You are redeemed. Now, the There's an important distinction that needs to be made. This is one that New Testament scholar Leon Morris makes in one of his books. Redemption is not the same as deliverance. There's some overlap, but they must not be equated with one another. You see, deliverance, the act of freeing someone, oftentimes happens through a demonstration of overwhelming force or strength. The Navy SEALs deliver the hostages by ransacking the Al-Qaeda hideout with an overwhelming show of force. They were delivered. Superman brought deliverance to Lois Lane as he came and beat up Lex Luthor. Redemption, however, does involve the freeing of those captive, but it does so always through a price being paid, a cost 
that is absorbed. Remember, redemption comes out of the word ransom. This is important for us because we see this association with redemption and payment all over the place. For example, in our scripture reading, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The price that was paid was Jesus' blood. First, uh, Titus 2, verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. What's the price that was paid for our redemption? He gave himself for us. The life of Jesus was offered. First Peter 1, 18 through 19, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Redemption equals cost, price, payment, ransom that is paid. This is important for us to appreciate our redemption because in order to redeem us, God didn't just flex his muscles, God sacrificed his son. There's a big difference. It's one thing for Superman to save you with this power. It's another to know that Superman saved you by giving up his life. And that's what God does for us, for our redemption. Now, I think for a lot of us, this concept of being redeemed by God doesn't move us appropriately, mainly because we don't really grasp the severity and the gravity of our enslavement. 12 Years a Slave is a biographical memoir of an African-American man named Solomon Northup. He was born a free man in New York and was living a dream life, married with two kids, owned their own home as he made a living playing the violin. His memoir goes on to show how he was drugged by men he trusted kidnapped, taken down to the south where he would become a slave. And for the next 12 years, he narrates the brutality he endured as a slave. The times he was betrayed by people he trusted where no one would believe his story that he's actually a free man and not a slave. In the movie adaptation of this book, you have a, a very powerful scene near the end of the movie where Solomon is working the fields, by this time resigned to his, his, his lot in life after numerous attempts of trying to escape. A carriage comes and stops. A man steps forth. And from a distance, Solomon looks, and he sees someone familiar. He recognizes that it's his friend, Mr. Parker, from New York. Somehow word reached that Solomon was down there and that Mr. Parker has come to free him from his slavery. And you have this scene where Solomon is sprinting 
towards his friend and embraces him with all of his might, and he breaks down in tears as you can just see the joy and the relief fill him. I think the reason why so many of us are unmoved by the gospel is because we don't realize just how enslaved we once were. Whether we recognize it or not, we were once held in bondage to our masters. And I know that as Americans, this is hard for us to conceive. After all, in America, we are free. That's the core of what it means to be an American. But we must not confuse political freedom with spiritual freedom. The Bible describes humanity as being handcuffed and chained to to sin and death. Now, to help us understand how we're enslaved, we need to understand the concept of idolatry. When we think of idolatry, I often think of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I think of wooden statues or golden figures or a golden calf. We picture incense burning as worshipers bow down before various altars. That's what idolatry looks like. That's not me, we say to ourselves. Though idolatry is not less than what I just described, it is so much more. You see, idolatry is the elevation of anything in this world above God. Anything and everything can become an idol. Here in Irvine, common idols include family, kids, education, status, wealth, financial security, success, beauty, approval, The list goes on and on. Now, you might be thinking, wait, Jeff, I'm confused, because some of those things you listed, aren't they good? Aren't they virtuous? What's wrong with living for your kids? What's wrong with wanting financial security? What's wrong with wanting to succeed at work? Are you arguing that I should pursue mediocrity rather than excellence? No. You see, what makes an idol an idol is not what you desire. It's the intensity of that desire. What makes an idol an idol is not what you pursue, but the intensity of your pursuit. A Greek word often associated with idolatry is epithumai, which means intense Desire. It's often translated as craving or lust. It's desire on steroids. Idolatry occurs then when a good desire becomes an ultimate desire. When an I'd like to have becomes I must have. A mother's desire for her child to obey is a good desire. As parents, we should strive to cultivate 
children who behave and respond to authority. But even that good desire for obedience can become an idolatrous desire. It's one thing to say, I'd like for you to obey. It's another to say, you must obey. You know that this good desire has become an idolatrous one when the mother is willing to do whatever it takes to exact her child's obedience, even if it means screaming at their child, terrifying the child, abusing the child, shaming the child. You get what you want, but at what price? A student's desire to get straight A's is a good desire, but you know it's become an ultimate one when that student is willing to cheat and be dishonest for that A. You know it's become an ultimate one when that student becomes despondent and depressed and crushed for days on end when he doesn't get that A. A husband's desire to be respected by his wife is a good desire. But you know it's become an idolatrous one when the husband is willing to do whatever it takes to demand that respect. I like this definition from Tim Keller. He writes, an idol is anything we believe we need apart from Jesus to make us happy, satisfied, or fulfilled. It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning, and identity. It's looking to the things of this world to fill the shoes of God. Nothing in this world can give you ultimate significance, security, and happiness. Nothing and no one, not your children, not your spouse, not your job, not your vacation, not your 401k, nothing can fill the shoes of God. Only God can. He alone was meant to be the center of our universe. Dear friends, what are the idols of your heart? What do you look to for your significance and security? If you could fill in the blank, if I had blank, life is complete. If I had blank, life is complete. What goes into that blank? Where does your free thoughts drift towards when it's free to roam? What do you tend to think about all the time? You see, when God created us, he created us as beings of worship. We were created to worship. Of course, we were created to worship the one true living God. But if we're not worshiping God, You're worshiping something else. So it's never a question of do you worship. It's always a question of what do you worship. 
Now, it's crucial that we identify what we worship because what inevitably happens is that the object of our worship slowly over time controls us and masters us. Isaiah 44, verse 14 through 15 is helpful here. Isaiah writes this, he cuts down cedars for his use, or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel and the rain makes it grow. A person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself. Also, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. What I like about this passage is Isaiah depicts both a healthy relationship to creation and an unhealthy one. In the beginning, he describes a healthy relationship. In this instance, man's relationship to a tree. You see man caring for the tree, growing the tree, cutting it down, using the wood to start a fire, to warm himself, using the fire to bake bread. That's how God envisioned man's relationship to creation to look like, where creation serves man. But at the very end, something happens. Man takes this piece of wood and carves it into an idol, and he worships it, and he, he bows down before it. And now God's design for us is flipped on its head where no longer does creation serve man, but man now bows down to creation. We see this happen all the time. Money is a gift from God for our stewardship and usage. And yet, as financial guru Dave Ramsey often remarks, for many Americans, they don't own their money, their money owns them. We all know people who, because of their lavish spending, are now, now find themselves in insurmountable debt, and they are imprisoned by their debt. We see this with our smartphones. Smartphones were created to serve man. But over time, what happens? We begin to serve the phone. It has mastery over us to the point where if we leave the house without our phones, we feel anxious, we feel insecure. We find ourselves absorbed with the phone, bowing down to the phone. Even while our loved ones and friends are sitting around the table, we'd rather stare at the screen, cutting us off from those life-giving friendships. We don't own the phone. The phone owns us. We see this with the idol of approval. Is it wrong to want the approval of others? Of course not. The Bible even says, if at all possible, live at peace with all people. But someone who worships at the idol of approval eventually becomes a slave to people's opinions, so much so 
that he or she no longer offers what they want. They're constantly deferring, and we no longer see their personality anymore. So much so that when someone says or does something that is wrong or unjust because we're afraid to offend those people because we want their approval, instead of speaking out, we are quiet. So much so that when someone points out a flaw in us, because we want people's approval, we will zealously defend ourselves and justify ourselves because the last thing we want is to look bad in other people's eyes. We become a slave. Rebecca Piper says this, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. And unfortunately, over time, what often happens is that our idols not only control us, but they dehumanize us. The idols of this world are cruel taskmasters who have no conscience, no care for your well-being. They demand a pound of flesh. They demand your blood, sweat, and tears. They demand you make sacrifices for it. In return, it promises to give you the significant security and peace that you long for. I picture, again, the cell phone idolatry. The more you bow down and are controlled by it, the more isolated you become from the world and life-giving relationships. We often laugh when we see a group of teenagers hanging out and they're all staring at their own phones, right? We look at that and we're saying, how much more fulfilling would their lives be if they were all laughing and talking to each other? And so someone who is staring at a screen all the time is becoming less and less human, right? We see the same with the heroin addict. You've seen those pictures of before and after where after 10 years of addiction, they look nothing like they were before they were addicted. Over time, the addiction is so strong that that the person is just obsessed and consumed, thinking about the next high, even stealing from family members and loved ones. The idol of that high is ruthless. You must serve me before everyone else. Or how about the idol of control? You're so obsessed with control. The idol of control says, things must go according to your plan. If things don't, something bad is going to happen. And so the person in the throes of that idolatry is anxious and nervous all the time, worried that their plans will not fall into place. They're willing to exact Uh, uh, wrath on those who violate their plans because they're not doing what you're supposed to. In the end, that person becomes more and more isolated, less and less human. 
but not every master is like that. Not all gods are dehumanizing. Not all gods demand a pound of flesh. There is a king who truly does love you. A king who truly does look out for your well-being, who wants your best, what's best for you. This king does not demand our blood, sweat, and tears. No, in his great love for you, this king became a slave and offered his blood, sweat, and tears so that we who were slaves might become sons and daughters of God. This king does not demand an exact payment from us, but instead made payment for us. Unlike the idols of this world, he's not, he does not drain you of your life. He gives you and makes you more human. He puts your well-being before his own, even to the point of death. He is not a cruel master, but gentle, not capricious, but steadfast, not selfish, but selfless. And this king goes by the name of Jesus. And because Jesus paid the price of his life, he sets us free from our idolatry. He sets us free from the cruel taskmasters of this world, liberating us to see the truth, who the one true living God really is, and enables us to then walk with and live for the one true living God. But something happens. This freedom we enjoy, we oftentimes find ourselves going back to our old masters. Paul says something, uh, gives us a warning in 1 Corinthians 7, 23. He writes, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Paul's saying, you guys have been set free from slavery. So don't live as a slave. Don't go back to your old idols. I think history can be instructive here. When slavery was abolished in 1865 and the 13th Amendment was a past, you had millions of African Americans finally, overnight, their status is now free. No longer are they slaves. And so you would imagine after a lifetime of horrific enslavement, you would anticipate a lot of them leaving the plantation, leaving the farms, and going to the city to start a new way of life. That happened for some. But surprisingly for many, they returned to the farm. They returned to their plantation. Some even returned to their former masters. Why? Because it's all that they knew. Those were the only skills they possessed. And so they reverted back to what was comfortable, what was familiar. I wonder if the same happens with us 
Jesus sets us free. But we take that freedom and we run back to our old masters. Why? Because for so long we lived with a certain mindset. We believed a certain lie. We felt that fame, power, wealth would really free us. And we go back to that way of living. Dear friends, this morning, I may not know what captures your heart this morning. I don't know what idols you find yourself bowing down before, but one thing I know with all my heart is this. Your idol does not love you as much as Jesus does. Your idol will not dare sacrifice itself for you. Your idol will not fulfill you as much as Jesus can. Your idol will not give you the security you think it can give you as much as Jesus will. Your idol will not deliver the significance you long for as much as Jesus gives. Whatever you are looking to find in that idol, I guarantee Jesus will give far more and perfectly. No one, nothing in this world compares to King Jesus. Only when we anchor our first love in him, only when we derive our security, our well-being, our significance in him, will we then have a proper relationship to the things of this world. Only when we derive and, and, and drive the roots of our hearts deep in the soil of the gospel will then our careers, our wealth, our families, our loved ones have their proper relationship to us where they no longer become obsessive must-haves, but we can hold them out with open hands and live for our Lord. Dear friends, Jesus gave himself up for us so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be set free from, this, from the masters of this world. Let us then live as free people, no longer as slaves, but as children of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we confess to you that our hearts often gravitate to the idols of this world, believing the, the, the millions of commercials we hear this day as they put forth various idols as the answer to our heart's longing. Lord, help us to see that only in you are we made whole. Help us to see, Lord, the exorbitant price Jesus paid to set us free. Help us to see, O oh Lord, that we are most free when we are following you. We thank you, Father, for redeeming us. We thank you, O oh Lord, for liberating us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.